Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There are four logically possible explanations for the existence of matter. The first is that matter is eternal. It has always existed. We know there are, have been those that have held this position as far back as we have history. Even some of the pagan religions had their gods living in an eternal physical realm. Those in America who are philosophical naturalists, they believe there is nothing but the physical, have made great efforts to find a way around the second law of thermodynamics, what Einstein called the most important law to understanding the physical universe. Entropy. Everything is winding down. And if there's an end, then there must, logically, have been a beginning. Matter, then, did not always exist. Many fanciful mathematical formulas have been created to try to imagine some sort of physics whereby matter could have existed in some state where it could be eternal. The Big Bang Theory is just such an effort. But it is entirely imaginary. And besides, if matter existed eternally in some steady state, what made it suddenly change into the universe we have now? So they've invented a repetitious Big Bang. And again, and again, and again, the universe bounces in and out. <laughs> or how about multiverses? Since what we have is so impossible, then there must simply be billions or trillions of universes and ours was finally the one where it all worked. An exceptionally and repulsively illogical statement. Entirely imaginary, but many believe it. Why? Because they want this one explanation for the existence of matter to be correct, even if there is no hard evidence to support it. Because otherwise, another one must be true. Possibly number two. Matter appears from nowhere. It just pops into existence without any reason or cause. Okay, you're thinking this is really stupid. And I'd agree. So it may surprise you that NASA has spent millions looking into empty space to see if maybe they'll see matter suddenly appear. 
Why would it even grasp onto such an illogical hope that directly contradicts known science, the first law of thermodynamics? Because if the first possibility isn't true, and this one isn't true, then another one must be. The third logical possibility, the third logical possible reason that matter exists, it doesn't. <laughs> it's all in your mind. <laughs> in other words, everything is really pure mind. One might say pure spirit. All that you touch and taste and smell and see or hear, you don't really touch or taste or smell or see or hear. Most Westerners agree that this uh, lacks logical cogency. Oh, I can almost say that. But in the East, it's carefully considered. And there is, in fact, a wonderful, shall we say, hint of truth in it. But I struggle with this idea that all of the different people in the world imagine the same physical universe, or at least one that shares correspondence with everyone else, like the stars. How could it be that scientists from different parts of the world who never met or even heard of one another come to the same conclusions about the physical world? How do inventors make the same exact discoveries, even though they don't know each other? And why? Oh, why? Would the places where this logical possibility is believed, why would, they're pretty much universally, they're terrible places to live. Why would people imagine such terrible existences if they don't actually exist? Because if this isn't true, and matter doesn't just appear out of nowhere, and it hasn't always existed, then there is only one other logical possibility. Our space-time-matter continuum was created by something or someone not of the physical world at all. We read the culmination of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and with it he contends very strongly for the first of three things we must recognize, the reality of the spiritual world. Paul uses phrases like cosmic powers and heavenly places to explain that the spirit world exists. That creation ex nihilo, that all the physical universe was created out of nothing that was physical, is a reality. And since Paul contends that God created all things, he is then contending that God is spirit. In his writing, we also find that he believes, as do all the other biblical writers, that God is omniscient. He knows all things. And also that God is immense. Theologians used to use the word omnipresent. Present everywhere. But people confuse that by thinking that God is like peanut butter spread over toast. A piece of him is everywhere. <laughs> but that's not what we contend. God is 100% present in every single location at all times. As Dr. Wilsey liked to say, God does have location. It just happens to be every location. <laughs> that, by the way, means that the spirit world exists in tandem with this world. God is in every place in the spirit world at all times, which means he's in every place in the physical world at all times. You walk through God everywhere you go. 
When you breathe in and out, you're breathing in and out in God. Every beat of your heart beats in God. Every move you make is a move in and through God. Whoa! (laughs) That'll rattle the brain cage a bit, okay? (laughs) Once your mind is free to go on, Consider this. God is, in His nature, simple in constitution. We are complex. We live in the spirit world, in fact, have souls, but also, and primarily as to our consciousness, we live in the physical world. The point is that we do not have spiritual eyes. God, as a spirit being, is invisible to us. Did Adam and Eve have spiritual eyes while they lived in perfection? Don't know. The Bible is silent on that, but we do know that one day we will see the spiritual. All will stand before God. All will see the spiritual. That may be why so many choose to believe one of the other three possibilities for the existence of matter. They don't want to consider the ramifications of the truth that they will stand before God considering the state of their hearts and actions. Anyway, God is spirit. But beyond creating the physical world and all the creatures in it, like us, God also created spirit beings. The Greek word for these beings is angels. (laughs) Yeah, we borrowed it pretty much directly. Look around. Is there an angel right next to you? Maybe. How could we know? We don't have eyes that can see the spirit world. But we do know this. You've probably walked through a few angels in your life. Maybe coming into the church today. It's fascinating. But we need to go on and consider the second major point for today. Paul, earlier in his letter, wrote that all who believe are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Well, day of redemption. From what do we need to be redeemed? In the section we read, Paul uses some frightening language. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The cosmic powers over this present darkness. The schemes of the devil. Flaming darts of the evil one. That ought to make us sit up and pay attention. Paul uses these arresting words to remind us that there is a vast spiritual war going on. We must grasp the reality of the spiritual war. You know what the problem is with the U.S. when it comes to war? It's always somebody else's war we're fighting. You got the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. These were fought on our own soil for our own country. That's it. Every other war we have fought has been for somebody else over there. How does one feel a war they can't see? How do we participate in a war we can't see? And then there's this. We know where Hitler came from. Idi Amin, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein. These were all evil guys people could see and track. (laughs) Point is, if there's a spiritual war then there must be a spiritual enemy fighting that war. Wars don't start unless somebody starts them, yes? So, 
From where did this spiritual enemy come? Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There was a time when the one now called Satan was a perfect spirit being created by God, perhaps called son of the morning or Lucifer. From the bits and pieces we have about him in the scriptures, we understand that he was one of three archangels, the greatest of created beings. Apparently, he became proud and fell from his exalted state, taking one-third of all the angels with him. The scripture is also clear that Jesus defeated him for all time on the cross. But for reasons we don't entirely understand, Satan and his demons still have some amount of power in this world. And it is clear that those in the spirit world can see what occurs in the physical realm. Now, exactly how spirit beings would see physical is far beyond our understanding. We also know that those in the spirit world can, again, in ways we can't entirely understand, interact with this physical realm. So, we know that there is an eternal, all-powerful spirit, God. There are myriads of angels who fight with him, and a vast number of demons who, with Satan, fight against God and all who are his. Which brings us to our third and really the critical point. People might believe there's a spiritual world. Most people in the world believe there's some sort of God out there, even if they are just moralistic, therapeutic deists. It might even be that they believe there is an active spiritual war going on. It's very popular to believe in karma nowadays. See it in movies all the time. You get back whatever you give. Most people don't think it means from a previous life like Hinduism, Buddhism teach, but rather what comes around goes around, you know. And probably they'd be willing to attribute some sort of spiritual connection to this. But, especially in America, no matter how much they might believe there's a spiritual dimension separate from ours and that there is a war happening in that dimension, they don't believe that they are in the middle of this war, that it is happening right around them or horror of horrors, that they could be drafted into service in that war. Or worse yet, that the battle might run right over us. And whether we would or no, flaming arrows fly perilously close to us and fiery swords swing towards our necks. But that is precisely what the Bible tells us is the reality. The war is here. And it is raging all around us right now. As if what Paul said didn't worry us enough, John says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They have been drafted even though they have not a clue into his army. Now, we who believe are not subject to him. We are not on his side, which can only mean one thing. Satan and his demons are at war with us. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Nobody had to attack Germany to cause Hitler to begin his mad march. He was simply carrying out his commander's design. Nobody has to tell that guy to take advantage of you. 
He is, whether he knows it or not, under the sway of the evil one. This is war. I think. God is everywhere. Okay? Angels cannot be everywhere at once. Only God is immense. But they are all around us. Lots of them. So where do we think Satan and his enemies would be? <laughs> do we not understand that the bedlam of battle lies all about us? So we have to ask a few questions. First, what is a spiritual battle? Let's begin with who we fight, or rather, whom we do not fight, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not fight against people, even if they lie in the power of the evil one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is not the people who are behind this war, but the evil one under whose power they lie. We fight against the realm of Satan. And then notice, as the Holy Spirit instructs us through what Paul wrote, that the enemy is organized. Like armies we see in our physical realm, this power has rulers and authorities. Don't think this is some simplistic group of horned demons with red pajamas and forked tails. This is a seriously powerful force. And we better be ready for them. It is important also to note that they do rule over this age. We don't know why God has left them in their positions of authority when they are so obviously in rebellion against him, but the whole world is under their sway. Only those who belong to Christ are free from their oversight. Again, these are spirit beings and are thus superior to us in understanding and in power. Well, if that's true, how can we fight them? What enables us to fight? It is by God's strength, not ours. Be strong in the Lord. Take up and put on the whole armor of God. We take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Even the faith we have is God's faith, not ours. Paul has already written, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Our faith comes not from us, but from God's faithfulness. To say this another way, our faith is really God's relationship with us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that we find, as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Through the Holy Spirit's power, we can be strengthened to fight in this war, Christ dwelling in our hearts. Let's stop for a moment and look at something that we as English speakers can't see. There's a neat feature available in Koine Greek, which the New Testament authors sometimes use. It allows for you to be made plural, meaning whatever was written was for all those who might hear it, not each one individually, but as a group. It's for all of you as a group. Most of the pronouns in this section about spiritual warfare are plural. 
Meaning the church all together is fighting this war. It isn't that we individually fight, but that we fight all together until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We all, we can fight because we are in unity together. We are not alone. We stand shoulder to shoulder. And it is only in that way that we can fight this cosmic enemy. Okay. We've learned a lot about the who in this fight. Now we'd better find out when this battle starts. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Okay, Paul, the evil day. We'll brace ourselves. When is this evil day? All we've got to do is back up a little bit in the same letter and we find out that Paul has already told us. Well, told them, but it applies to us as well. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. <laughs> the days. The days we're living in right now. The evil day is now. The spiritual war is raging right now. Duck! Flaming darts are flying over us right now. So get ready to fight. Uh, okay, fight where? <laughs> Throughout this section we just read, Paul echoes words he used earlier. Earlier when he talked about proper behavior in the church, the family, the workplace, and the world. Now, why would he do that? Because he wants his readers to understand that all he wrote earlier culminates in this warning. This is the final set of instructions Paul gives. Everything before it is related. Which means we fight in the church. Not amongst each other, but in unity in the body. We fight in the family. Not with our siblings and our parents but in submission and love that are there to be exercised. We fight in the workplace, again, with submission and honor properly expressed to each other. And we fight in the world, remembering that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We fight. How do we fight? We've reached the most important part of our discussion. This is the part where we really need to pay attention because if we are going to fight in a war, we really, 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 really want to win. <laughs> you don't want to be the body lying in a pool of blood on the battlefield, okay? So let's learn how we fight. Paul makes it clear that a balanced and complete Christianity is required to succeed. Truth. Righteousness. Readiness of the gospel, the good news of peace, faith, salvation, knowledge of the word. Lots of people have explored in depth the relationships between the various articles of earthly warfare and those used in spirit war. We'll do a little of that, but I'd mostly rather like to take an overall view of how the battle is engaged. To start, note how three of these items are very tightly related. Truth, the belt that holds everything together. Readiness, the ability we have to march in this war at all, simply because we have experienced the good news of peace, the footwear that makes possible any advance of the church. 
and a thorough knowledge of the Word of God, the sword with which we can actually defeat the enemy. These three foundational elements of spiritual warfare define a Christian's advance in the knowledge of God. First, we recognize there is truth and that His name is Jesus Christ. Okay. Second, we experience the good news and gain the peace that can only come through Jesus Christ. Then we move on to maturity where we have learned enough of His Word to be able to wisely attack Satan, introducing people to Jesus Christ rather than fighting against flesh and blood. Do you get the idea that renewing our minds through the Scriptures as we studied last week just might be important? (laughs) Paul never lets up on this thought. He pounds on it. And so should every person who teaches, preaches, or just shares the good news of Jesus. But look at the other three pieces of armor. Righteousness, faith, and salvation. Protection of the heart is achieved by the breastplate. A Christian not living in righteousness cannot fight the battle for Christ because they end up in desperate need of spiritual CPR. My dad, not having a lot of money, but still wanting and needing to hunt, there were ten of us kids, bought surplus World War II ammo for sighting in the guns and for target practice. As an inquisitive and technically oriented young teen, I noticed these rounds had full metal jackets. The bullets we bought to actually shoot at deer had rounded lead tips. Hey, Dad, why do these have pointy metal tips? They were made to be used in war. Okay, why do they have pointy metal tips? (laughs) My dad didn't let loose with a lot of words easily. I take after my mom. You see, you don't want to kill a man in battle, you just want to wound him. Oh, why? I was a why kid, and I'm still a why person. Well, if you just wound a man, then two others will have to carry him back to safety. That way, you remove three men from the enemy's front lines instead of just one. Besides, who wants to kill another man? I thought that was pretty smart and compassionate. And we recognize that Satan is not compassionate, but he is very intelligent. One of the great frustrations of all Christian leaders is how much time they have to spend away from the front lines caring for those in the mass unit who let their breastplates of righteousness fall in the midst of the battle. How did they get injured? They didn't protect their hearts. And they didn't live righteously and the enemy stabbed through to their inner being and then someone has to spend hours and days and weeks helping them get back to spiritual health before they can finally enter the battle again and at least two people are stopped from advancing the gospel because one sin actually it's going to be a lot more than two Not to mention those who will be wounded in the battle because they weren't there to help. Or worst of all, in their madness, if they wounded those they were supposed to protect. And while we're on that thought, what happens when a general is wounded? All the troops that were under his command are in disarray, yes? We'll come back to that thought. 
Paul compared faith to a shield and salvation to the helmet. You lose your head, you kind of lose it all, right? (laughs) But we find in the language of Paul generally that faith and salvation are two sides of the same coin. Salvation is the believing. And by faith, he usually means that which we believe. So here he takes a look at exercising the faith God gave us, the shield, and an encouragement in knowing we will never ultimately lose our heads. It's a lot easier to fight a battle bravely when you know ultimately you will win. Let's take a look at a few other truths that are woven into this instruction. Stand. We need only to stand. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Withstand in the evil day. Stand firm. You never have to plant weeds, remember? You never have to chase Satan down in order to get into a fight. You know he will bring the fight right up into your face. So stand firm and study. The sword belongs to the Spirit and that sword is the Word. Our one means of fighting against Satan and his hordes is the Word. Study. Hold the Spirit's weapon. Hold. Notice the importance of the shield of faith by the statements before and after it is mentioned. In all circumstances, you have it, hold it in front of you. There's a war going on with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Do you sleep on or under your shield? (laughs) Oh, that's a weird question. Let me explain. In movies, we generally see Roman soldiers depicted as holding small shields. There were some that used those shields, but they were actually the exception. The normal shield was huge, nearly as tall as a man. Couple that with the fact that battles often lasted many days. Obviously, troops have to get some sleep. So they'd sneak off into some place free of the enemy and catch some shut-eye. Sometimes those places would be wet and muddy, so some would sleep on their shields. But the smart ones slept under their shields because they remembered that they were in the midst of a battle and the enemy could come on them at any moment. Sometimes Christians go on vacation and they sleep on their shields. Sometimes it's when they're just going out to dinner. I mean, who are we kidding? Many Christians fall asleep the moment they walk out of the door of the church building, okay? (laughs) And they don't keep their shields over them. If you will live your faith, back to that righteousness thing, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one with your shield of faith. Keep your shield up at all times and pray. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pray always and always as the Spirit leads. Being filled with the Spirit means to allow Him to guide you in everything. So persevere in prayer. Pray for all the saints. Keep alert, earnestly, and in humility ask God to care for the saints. 
And while you are praying, pray for Christian leaders, those generals we talked about. Paul asked them to pray also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The sword of the Spirit is what? Oh yeah, the Word. Christian leaders ought to boldly declare the Word of God. But trust me, they get beat down. They get worn out. And besides, any intelligent enemy will attack the leaders with greater vigor. And Satan is very intelligent. We do not want our leaders to fall. Pray that they keep their shield up. Pray that God helps them to boldly speak the words of the good news of Jesus Christ. Pray for me, please. The idea of this whole section is to do God's bidding and then evil will have no hold on you. We are to listen to and propagate the good news about him. We are to study his word. We are to pray in the spirit, being filled with the spirit as we pray. But why do we fight? Remember, this section is the culmination of all Paul's instruction in his letter to the church in Ephesus. And the whole purpose of his letter is to instruct them in how to build their church. In other words, this is critical to all aspects of Christian living. Paul's concern is not demons. It is proper Christian behavior. James wrote, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Just as he runs to battle, Satan will run from the battle when he knows he can't win. And when would it be that he can't win? When we've drawn near to God. Our focus should not be our evil enemy, but God. And when we fight the spiritual war in success, we show more of God. And then, I wonder, do we learn more of God as we fight? Is that maybe why he leaves us in the battle? Let's get real practical here for a moment. How do we recognize the spiritual war? Well, certainly in temptations... I mean, men, when you are drawn towards pornography, can you not feel the devil's weapons flaming so close to your heart? Women, when you put attention to that relationship you know you should avoid, have you cast aside your shield of righteousness so that Satan's fiery darts begin to pierce your heart? Alcohol and drugs and lust for money, corrupt behavior of any kind. Do we not feel the hot breath of demons as they seek to beat us down? But then, when we turn from evil, do we not hear the strong voice of our Father? Well done, my child! When we help a brother or sister up out of the muck, can we not feel the victory? When we allow the Spirit to fill our minds with His thoughts, can we not feel His power coursing through our veins? 
Demons are real. There are probably some in this room now. But we do not need to fear demons or any evil. The battle was won on a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago when Satan thought he was winning because he did not understand the nature of God. We don't have to worry about the battle. We just have to be on the right side. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. John the Apostle, speaking of false teachers of Satan, wrote these simple but ah, so eloquent words. As we move to prayer, let us hold them firmly in our hearts. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Father, if we could actually see this war, we'd probably fall on our faces terrified until we remembered you. You placed your spirit within us and he is greater. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Not a chance. For you are God. You created all things. You alone are eternal. You alone exist in all places at all times. You alone know all things. And you've already told us the battle's over. We're just mopping up here. I don't know why you have us still in the battle. Some of us feel the battle pretty closely. If not in our own souls, in those of the, the people you've given us, our families, our friends. We see some of them struggling. Some of them failing. Many of them hurting fiery darts of Satan piercing them through. Frankly, it makes me angry. I hate sin. And I hate the pain it causes. And I know you do too. Help us, Lord, fight in this battle, keeping our breastplates of righteousness in place, holding our shields up to protect ourselves, using our swords, to bring peace to those who are caught in the web, the web of deceit that Satan weaves. Help us free people, Lord. Help us free them by introducing them to your son. He became a little baby, lived a human life, lived as a real human, died as a real human in sacrifice for us because of who he is that could not hold him and he won this war and we can be safe forever in your arms help us to bring that message to people in Jesus name we pray Amen